everybody. Welcome to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Ken Dobson. Today, oh geez, I want to make a podcast about the wound gift dynamic, the alchemical and mysterious relationship between wound and gift. And my podcast is called Hints and Guesses, and that's all I am attempting to do today is offer a few hints and guesses around the mystery of, of this profound relational dynamic between our wounds and our gifts. And, and like in a crazy, insane myth meets real life, I seriously injured myself this week on Monday. So I'm about to get PG-13 here. And so if you get a little squeamish, you can fast forward. I won't spend too much time here. But I was with my neighbor, Bob, who's 85 years old, has a little farm down the street. And we have a little exchange where he lets me use his wood splitter. We both uh, burn wood in the winter for heat. And uh, in exchange, I help him split his wood. And that's what I was doing on Monday, helping him uh, split a few trees that he cut down and I managed to get my finger, uh, caught between a piece of wood and the mechanical, uh, hydraulic lever. It's sort of a, a challenging, <laughs> wood splitters are kind of loud, so it's kind of hard to communicate with the person you're working with if you're working with somebody else. And so it was just a terrible accident. And I, I pulled off the end of, of my index finger on my right hand. So yeah, it was pretty painful and I'm still in a lot of pain. And, um, you know, every, everything should be fine in the end. I'll just have a little, a shorter finger. And I guess what's, um, strange about this is that I had been thinking about doing a kind of wound gift podcast for a while. And also in the middle of, um, I'm in the middle of an, of a online course, uh, around the myth of iron John and around Robert Bly's book, um, of the same name, iron John and Robert Bly just passed away the, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and, and maybe I'll come to this, as an example, but in the story, the the main character wounds his finger, pinches his finger. So it was just like a weird, like, huh, what is happening to me? And 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 of course, I don't want to turn everything into a metaphor, which is a tendency I I might have. Uh, everything is symbolic because it is, and also it's just real, you know, just. Life is painful sometimes, and sometimes there are accidents, and, and it was just one of those weeks. And, and actually, um, I know this is uh, first world problems, but also totaled two cars, and the other two cars also got, uh, were damaged in, in, uh, in wrecks. So four cars, I mean, and um, yeah, so just like one of those like, well, wait a minute, what was happening right now? What's happening? And uh, yeah, so I don't know, I'm in a kind of a strange place. And to be in sort of constant pain is new for me. For some of you, it's probably not. And 
in some ways it gives me a lot of empathy for people who struggle with chronic pain of one kind or another just to have this like it's like a tapping you know I was going to say a tapping on the shoulder but it's kind of like that like hey 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 this hurts and um I couldn't imagine, you know, this same sort of thing going on for months and months and for some people for years. So, um, and it's, it's also, it's funny because I used to think about myself as not having a lot of anxiety. Uh, it's, it was, it was more in my own shadowy, uh, realm. I think I thought people who are anxious, I don't know, like, um, I think there was maybe a level of judgment or I just didn't understand. It turns out it was just a lot more hidden for me. And, and when the, and here's the irony, my, my wife is really the one that um, started pointing this out, sort of wondering what was happening. But when I feel anxious, I speed up instead of slow down or freeze. And uh, what's funny about the injury I have is I just can't, I can't do anything quickly. I have to do everything with my left hand. I also have to be really careful because almost like worse than the, in, than the moment of injury, because you have all this adrenaline, is, is when you bump it later on. It's just like this kind of blinding, ridiculous pain. So, yeah, it's like, all right, well, I can't be my, quote, normal self in, in anxious times you know, speed up. I just can't. Um, I make a mess of things or hurt myself. So I don't know. There's something in there. I'm not trying to quickly turn it into some sort of life lesson. I'm just saying, yeah, well, it's, you know, my own body is forcing me to, to move differently in the world. So, uh, maybe I ought to let that happen. So, um, yeah, I, uh, let me come back to sort of the topic at hand and that is the conversation I want to host a little conversation around a wound gift mystery. And um, maybe the, the, let me say some like opening things about it. The first thing that I want to say is I'm treading cautiously because one of the things that can happen when you start talking about the gifts of something painful is that it cheapens it or it quickly turns it into some sort of like moralizing lesson. Or if you, if you have a more theistic point of view, uh, where, or a theological mind, you might start thinking in, in terms of uh, causation, like, well, maybe God or the universe, if, you're, if, that, if that works for you, caused this wound or... Um, or even trauma or traumatic event so that, you know, so the first thing I want to say is that I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not trying to describe a, a sort of causal relationship. This happened to me so that I could learn fill in the blank. To me, that cheapens it. It's, it, it simplifies it. Um, so I prefer that there is a relational dynamic between wound and gift. The wound is present and the gift is present and they're in a conversation. They're in relationship. And if, and, and you might want to ask at this point, well, why talk about it at all? I mean, we live in a, in a kind of, uh, 
um, cure-oriented culture. Um, actually, the, the phrase I've been using lately is a, a, a kind of um, symptom elimination obsession. And we treat all symptoms as if the point is to eliminate the symptom. The whole pharmaceutical industry is rooted in this. A lot of different therapies, I'm not against therapy, I mean, I have an analyst myself, but many therapeutic approaches are symptom-oriented. Uh, I mean, they, they might not say it directly, that they're not interested in the deeper <laughs> dynamics, but if I could just get this symptom eliminated, I would be whole or more whole or healed. I mean, just watch, you know, commercials. The only time I ever watch commercials is when I watch sports, and, and I do like to watch, you know, various games on uh, on TV. You can judge me for that. I can take it. And uh, I've just noticed like almost every commercial is about symptom elimination. So um, my point right now is that, okay, we're aware that we have issues and problems. I don't know if we would call them wounds, but our approach is Let's eliminate the symptom. But that's not really a deeper conversation with the wound. That's not a deeper conversation with the psycho-spiritual element of, of our woundedness, we could say. And, uh, and maybe my main point is, it's not that popular to talk about descending into your wounds. You know, Robert Bly, recently deceased, said, if you want to fly, you have to descend into your wounds. That's a very old archetypal and I think true image. And my, my point right now is, in the mystery of the relationship between wound and gift, you won't know very much about your gifts if you're unwilling to descend into your wounds, if you're unwilling to have a conversation around wounds. And I don't want to go into tremendous detail about what I mean by wounds, because I, I just want to have a sort of um, hints and guesses initial 101 conversation about the dynamic. But we could say, maybe I'll say a couple of things. Sometimes we're talking about wounding events. Um, we could call those traumatic events. Sometimes we're talking about wounding dynamics, which are a lot harder to define, especially in early childhood, because we're all wounded from our uh, early caregivers and parents. No one gets out of that, period. But sometimes what wounds is a dynamic not necessarily an event, or the event is not in our memory, or the events are not in our memories. It's more of the dynamic that has a, a wounding effect on us. So it's, um, sometimes we're talking about that, and sometimes we're talking about the present. Um, maybe always we're talking about the present. We're not, because whatever happened in the past, wounds or wounding dynamics, we experience, um, our, our psyches have certain defense mechanisms against these, uh, these events or dynamics that are experienced now in the present. You know, it's like when your boss says something, your spouse says something, your kid does something, even something um, as unusual as you walk into a room and it has a certain smell and, and the body, you know, sort of somatically and psychologically responds in a certain way and, and it touches us in, in a wounded place. And I would like to suggest part of psychological growth and healing and holding, holding requires a deeper conversation with our wounds. And they can't be 
um, kind of like the soul. So I got this image from Parker Palmer, but he says the soul is like a caged animal or a wild animal somewhere down in there. And you can't just like break into the cage and say, come on out. It's, it's shy. And our wounds are shy too. And primarily because they, um, they reveal our vulnerable places. So you can't just march in there. You can't, you know, sign up for a weekend retreat or, or go on some special journey that then frees you and releases all these wounds and traumas. It doesn't really work that way. It's, it's more like, are you committed to beginning a conversation that's going to last a while and how long Well, the rest of your life? (laughs) I think this is one of the disappointing things and freeing things about psychological, spiritual growth is that it doesn't end. And if you can commit yourself to at least the ongoing conversation, kind of the way you you might commit yourself to a long-term relationship. I mean, short-term relationships are fun, you know, great. Um, Enjoy it. But it's not the same as a a long-term committed conversation over time. And, And that's what's required with this kind of wound gift dynamic and bringing that into to greater consciousness. So I wanted to say that about wounds. Maybe another thing I, I, I w- might want to say about wounds is that it's just part of human consciousness. It's not, um, it's the, the blessing and curse. It's, it's, you know, in the Adam and Eve story, they're not fully human until they're aware of their wounds. It's just absolutely the case. I mean, I know you could, I don't know anymore, but you know, people, well, some people do read the story literally. And and with that comes like, well, paradise was was pre-eating of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, really, what I wouldn't call that paradise. I'd call that deeply unconscious. It's it's a womb-like state. It's it's not human. When everything is supplied for you, like the umbilical cord, that's not fully human in, in the sense of of human consciousness. And it's the cutting of the umbilical cord. It's being kicked east of Eden. It's sudden awareness of our own morality, our own ethical reality, our capacities for both good and evil, our own tendency to lie and hide and cheat and steal and cover and feel shame. That is human. So consciousness itself is wounding. We're aware we're going to die. We're aware that we don't live up to our own potential. Um, we're aware that the, the forces and energies that course through our veins can cause tremendous good or harm in the world. We realize that we can both love and hate the same person. God, that is, talk about, about consciousness, you know. So there's something about the human reality that calls us toward greater awareness of our wounds and of our woundedness, of our vulnerabilities. And, and it's just part of the story. Nobody gets out of it. I think some, I, you know, maybe you've heard me pick on this before, but I think some expressions of contemporary spirituality are really like, um, are really attempts to return to the womb, to become unconscious again. To, to move toward a state of bliss and union and oneness and with that, I might add, and some blindness. You know, what we would call that in an extreme form is a spiritual bypassing, trying to go around your wounds back to a womb-like state where all your needs are met and you're floating in a sea of, in a salty sea being fed by the, you know, umbilical cord from the great mother. So 
what I'm saying is that's not going to work. That's not going to work. You uh, will then be split and simply unaware of what's in the basement, so to speak. Um, and with that, there's sort of good news and bad news. If we begin a deeper conversation with our wounds, the, the bad news is it's going to hurt and, and nobody likes that. I mean, if you've ever done any kind of trauma work, which I highly recommend, especially if you, um, uh, if, if it's becoming obvious to you or to others that you, uh, have a reactive state that is dominating your life at times. And you start to get curious about, hmm, where did I learn these things? Um, but uh, anyway, my, my main point right now is that uh, when you begin this conversation, it hurts. It, you, you feel again your wounds and who would want that? Well, I mean, you know, you would think, let's avoid that. Let's, you know, take some drugs so I don't have to feel this. So it's going to hurt. But we might say the good news is that it, that is also the beginning of healing. Um, and that healing is possible. I'd, and I'm not saying like sort of complete perfection. In no way am I saying that. But I'm saying a healing of some of these open wounds. Maybe they can become scars one day. I think I, I got that from, uh, I, I was one time inspired by something Glennon Doyle said. She said, try to write from your scars, not your open wounds. Um, now, sometimes I get the feeling, I'm picking on her, that she's writing from her open wounds. And, and maybe sometimes I do the same. Maybe that might be a little bit of projection on my part. But um, yeah, that's a way of saying, okay, when some healing begins to happen, you then you might be able to, to bring some language around it. And what's interesting about the Christian image of Christ is that, and, you know, speaking of the holidays and, and Christmas, um, where once again, the, the Christ image is brought before us culturally, and whether or not it has potency and power, you know, is, is, a, is a question, you know, how much of this is just nostalgia and feel good and let's get a warm drink from Starbucks and how, and how much is the, is the image itself arresting and challenging us. Um, but anyway, the, the Christ image is just that, that healing and woundedness are together. You have the five wounds of Jesus, you have the head and the hands and the, and the side, the two hands, the feet, the head and the side. These are the traditionally called the five wounds of Jesus. And it's just so interesting to me at the very center of, of what has formed as meaningful, as particularly in the Western Christian consciousness, and I don't mean you have to be a believer, but in Western consciousness more, more broadly, we have a wounded Savior figure. I mean, that's very, very striking. And even after the kind of the resurrection scenes, Jesus says, touch my wounds, touch my wounds, which I think is an image of, of the vulnerable places need to be touched in us. You know, we, we carry the five wounds of Jesus. Now, they're, they're marked differently. There's this unbelievable passage in, in Iron John that I just thought of where Robert Bly is talking about a conference that he attended once, and he had these little red ribbons, and, and he asked the men in the audience, this was a, a, a conference for, for men or some kind of like event, and he asked the men in the, in the crowd after talking about wounds to tie on their body with these red ribbons the place where they were wounded. 
And you could just see out in a sea of people all these various places, you know, their version of the five wounds of Jesus. Some people had ribbons all over them. Some people just had one in a particular place on the body. And, 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 and I imagine for some of the, the men there, this was the first time that they ever really brought more conscious attention to, to the fundamental fact of their own woundedness. And were even able to say, here, it hurts here. So um, my second point here is that when we begin a conversation, it, it does hurt, but the, the possibility of healing also begins to emerge. Um, and maybe my third point right here, um, just in, in trying to speak a bit about what we, moon, what we might mean by wounds, is that um, the wounds contain a kind of secret. And the secret goes something like this. The place where we are wounded reveals our sensitivities. And you could even say our core sensitivity or sensitivities. The place where we are uniquely sensitive to the way things are. Um, to, or to how we experience the world. Whenever we experience the world in a, in a uniquely natural way, um, there's something about our own sensitivities that are present. It's why two people can experience the same event and come away with a very different sense of, of how that event touched them. And even if you think about um, growing up in your own household, um, whether you thought, think about it as being particularly traumatic or not, um, we're all wounded in early childhood. No one gets out of that. But that's why two siblings with the exact same parents or, or parent um, can experience and are wounded by that uh, parent or parental dynamic differently. Why is that? You would think they would, have, they would carry their woundedness the exact same way. They're living in the exact same house, but it doesn't uh, hardly ever happen that way. It's because there's something about our own unique sensitivities that are present in the way we're wounded. Let me give you an image for that. Imagine uh, you are given armor and uh, as kind of an innate part of being born into the world, you're given a full, you know, uh, setup here. You're armored against the world in a certain way, but every single person has some missing part of their armor a gap somewhere. And we would call that our core sensitivities. You could even use a word like core vulnerabilities. We're vulnerable in this particular area. And that's and it's pretty challenging as an adult to come back into contact with that because what ends up happening is because we're vulnerable in that area, we have all kinds of strategies and coping mechanisms and, and ways of being in the world so as not to feel that, that kind of sensitivity and vulnerability, especially if it hurts or it got us into trouble or it got us kicked out or it got us, we feel like it, it injured us in some way. So we, we you know, psychologically want to protect ourselves from that. So one of the things that's happening in the kind of wound gift dynamic is that we're not just having a conversation with the wound that's present, 
but the sensitivity that's just behind that. It's like just around the corner from the wound itself. And, you know, there's a, there's a Taoist phrase. I think I've used it on this podcast when I've talked about wounds in the past, but I just, I love it. Uh, and it, and it's, here's the phrase, there's a hole waiting for the boar's tusk. You know, there's a hole waiting for the boar's tusk. What a mysterious one-liner that is. That means that's where the missing armor is. There's already a hole in us somewhere. And, um, and it's going, and at some point the boar is going to find that, that opening, that wound, that hole, and it's going to hurt. And, and another way of saying that is that, um, it almost doesn't matter what kind of environment we're raised in, whether we had good parents or bad parents or, um, experienced, uh, you know, being uprooted and, and, or, uh, severely challenged in some way in terms of our environment, uh, we carry that hole and, and each person's, each person's opening, it looks a little different. And at some point the boar is going to come along and strike that. And it's going to wound us because we're just sensitive in that area. And what I'd like to suggest is part of becoming an adult a mature adult is a little more awareness of both the wound and the sensitivity. And, and that already sort of brings us right to the doorstep of the wound gift, because to be sensitive, uh, and to carry your sensitivity into the world, let me put it another way to bring forth your vulnerability in the world is part of the gift. It's part of everyone's gift. And, it does require a certain amount of, of healing and wholeness to do that. A certain amount of maturity, a certain amount of, of descending into the wound, to use Robert Bly's language, before we can fly. I mean, um, otherwise, if we don't do that work, when we, quote, think we're being vulnerable, then we're often struck again by the tusk of the boar or by a certain phrase. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that if you do your work, you're not going to be wounded. That's not all, at all the case. In fact, um, in some ways you might be, the more you know about the wound gift dynamic, the more open you might be toward being touched like that again in, in a wounded place, but it won't uh, send you into the spiral or send you into the fight, flight or freeze, or it won't for very long. You'll be able to find your, your feet again and, and, um, and, and know, okay, this happens to me from time to time. And, and to see just a little bit of the gift that's involved in seeing the world this way. I hope you're at least tracking with, with what I'm saying here. Um, I thought I'd share kind of three real briefly myths Two of them you've heard me talk about before. I want to mention something about Iron John. I want to mention something about Parsifal. And I want to mention something about the Handless Maiden, which I'm not sure if I brought up on this podcast before, because one of the things that myths and stories do for us is actually bring us into a conversation with the very thing I'm describing, the wound gift dynamic. Any good myth is taking us there. It's taking us into the forest uh, of our the complicated <laughs> labyrinth, so to speak, 
or the forest or the swamp of our own consciousness and to help us roam around in the swamplands uh, to help us mature. I mean, that's really the point of, of really any deep story is to, is to give us a little path, a little map, a little image. First of all, that says you're not insane, but there's a way out. There's a healing path that you can go on here. So um, just to mention a few things to pick up uh, on one small aspect of the, of the Iron John story. So um, it's hard to know exactly where to begin. I think I'll just begin with sort of narrow it to, to the scene that I have in mind here. So scene one, act one, opening scene here. The wild man who's been taken from the forest is brought into the center of the castle. So into culture and civilization. I'll do a little interpretation here. And the king and the queen don't know what to do with the wild man. Um, and so they put him in a cage. This is what we often do with our instinctual selves. And it's, it's not bad. It's just not going to work very long in the long run. But it's, it's like, okay, the, our own wild, instinctive animal nature can get us into trouble. So the right thing to do, think the king and queen, is to lock it up. And the king, interestingly enough, gives the key to the cage to his wife. So the queen holds the key to the primal and instinctual, masculine, wild, hairy energy. And the king thinks, well, if, if I give it to my wife, it'll be safe. And which tells you something here. Well, you can read into that. You can read into the, the possible exchange that happens in the wedding ceremony here, where um, I'm going to give you the key and I'm going to lock this thing away. And, you know, and you. I expect you to, to keep this thing contained, you know, handing over the work, we could say. Anyway, that's maybe a whole other podcast. Um, okay, so the wild man is in the middle of the, the city, and people forget about him over time. You know, he's just the hairy beast, the rusty, hairy, wild creature that someone captured a long time ago and sort of out of sight, out of mind, and kingdom is going on as usual. And one day the king's son is out playing with his golden ball. And, and you know, the sphere, the golden ball is, is really an image of wholeness and, and a future kingship and, and even maybe a form of innocence and, and gold possibility. This is why Jesus at his birth is given gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gold is the image of future kingship. And they're sort of saying something like, will you live into this? The frankincense and myrrh, by the way, have to do with death. So talk about some mysterious gifts um, at Christmas time. You're the king and you're going to die. There's something about your future that is both um, birth and death being brought together. That, I mean, that these are the powerful symbols in kind of gold, frankincense, myrrh in the, in the Christ story. And, and the boy has just the, the golden piece here. And of course, he drops it and it rolls into the wild man's cage, which tells you, unless this boy has some relationship with the wild and instinctual self, he's never going to grow up. He's just going to live in mommy and daddy's house and be a good little boy and even be a good little king one day. Um, but he'll be missing something, something essential and vital. So the wild man gives him, makes a deal with him and says, you know, let me out of the cage. And the boy says, I can't, I don't have the key. And the, the 
Iron John or the wild man wants to know where the key is. And the boy says, it's under my mother's pillow. And he tells him something very fascinating. He says, you have to steal it. You have to become a thief. Um, you have to take. This is, um, what's the, oh, that's Prometheus who steals fire from the gods. There's not another way. And he's cursed because of it. But consciousness is brought is brought into the human sphere and there's always a cost and 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 he's saying all right you got to do this you have to steal you have to break from culture and civilization and your parents this is why jesus says unless you hate your father and mother you can't be my disciple if you're not willing to do that you haven't stolen the key you haven't taken you haven't said i have to find my own path here otherwise it's not very real it's not real at all in fact i'm, I'm just um, capitulating constantly, and I don't know anything about my own instinctual self. So there's a bit of, of breaking your parents' heart here. Here's another version of breaking your parents' heart, speaking of Jesus. Um, they, uh, you know, later on in his life, when he's really begun, uh, begun his, um, his, well, we would call it his ministry. I don't know what he would call it. Um, maybe living, bringing forth his soul and, in the world. Um, you know, they, some people come to him and say, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he says, who are my mother and brothers? You know, who are they? That's someone who's stolen the key. So anyway, um, so the boy goes and does eventually steal the key from his mother and lets the wild man out of the cage. And this is where myth meets reality. And he pinches his finger, which tells you something important. First of all, in a very broad sense, it says, in childhood, we will be wounded. Nobody gets out of childhood without some core wounds. And in, in this case, it's a wound to the finger. And what's interesting also about this dimension of the story, it's not just that we're going to be wounded as a child, but in our attempts to break the stranglehold of the mother, which is always there, and the the oppression of the father, whether present or absent, that that too is going to pinch us. It's going to wound us. And we're, we're going to have to carry that the rest of our lives. I, I met someone a few years ago um, who, told, who told me that his dad was his best friend. And I thought, this is interesting to me. I, and I don't, it just was a form of question. I, and it was something, is, is, is this an illusion? Is it real? Is it possible to, to have a best friend as a father? Um, or at some point, or maybe the better way of saying it, has he not had his finger pinched yet? That was my guess. Maybe he hasn't had his finger pinched yet. Maybe I'm wrong that he did, and there's, there's a, a more mature relationship on the other side of that. But I don't, think, um, I don't think we grow up very easily without stealing, leaving home, in Jesus' case, breaking our parents' heart and pinching our finger on the way out. It's gonna wound us. So the next part of the story is that the, the wild man says, well, obviously, you know, you can't go back home to mom and dad, come live with me in the forest. And that's what he does. He goes and lives in the forest and he begins to learn the secrets of, of, of the forest and of nature and of, of we might interpret that as the, the, the deeper part of the psyche, the, the instinctual side of the psyche, the psyche that's not under the thumb of the empire. Um, of mom and dad and culture and civilization and all the expectations, we we begin to know what it means to be out in the wild, out in the natural world, and where our communion of belonging begins to extend outside of the human sphere. That's part of what's happening in, in, 
as he gets to know the wild man. And, and he's told that he needs to kind of keep something from falling, keep anything from falling in the sacred stream that he's sitting by. And the wild man would go off during the day. And then one day the, the boy kind of accidentally, mindlessly, sort of the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, dips his wounded finger because it hurts, because it throbs, as my finger's throbbing right now, into the golden stream, or into the stream, the sacred stream, and he pulls it out and his finger is golden. So there you, there you have the image of the very thing that I'm talking about, the wound gift dynamic. The very place that he's wounded, when touched by the sacred, also has a golden dimension. It doesn't make the wound go away. It just turns gold, which is a clue. It's a mythic clue that um, if you have the courage to descend into the forest of, of, of your own um, difficulties and wounds, if given enough time, uh, by no, almost by accident, that's what's so powerful about the, about the story, you'll dip your, your wound in the stream and see that, that it shimmers a bit. It's like that Leonard Cohen song, you know, there's a crack in everything and that's where the light gets in. That's exactly what this story is saying. So, um... I'm not going to say more of the story because eventually he has to leave the forest. You can't live in the forest forever. You can't live in this kind of like um, anti-social, introverted, which is absolutely necessary, wild place forever. You might have to carry some of your gold and your wounds back into civilization and culture to, to be of some service to the world. That's kind of the aim of of this particular myth. And, um, and, and so let me share another story just to, to expand it, which is related. And, and that's a story of Parsifal and, and Parsifal is, um, uh, is this medieval tale that sort of sweeps the medieval world. It kind of comes, comes out of the mysterious depths and, and captivates really all of Europe. And it goes so deep in the psyche that, that we know it very well. We know it through the hero's journey. I know the hero's journey is just more than, than the Parsifal story, but this idea that we would go on a kind of quest, it's deep, deep, deep in, in the psyche. And, um, and Parsifal is one expression of this. And um, what's interesting about the story is that he, he is fatherless and he has kind of an overbearing mother who wants to keep him a boy and that's not going to work. And, and, I won't go into great detail, but she eventually dies and he sets off on a journey and he remembers his mother's warnings not to ask many questions and to wear the special underwear that she made him. And uh, one of the, um, I'll just do a very quick drive through version. What ends up happening is that he, he meets a knight, wants to be a knight, goes on the knight-like journey and, and gets a glimpse of the Holy Grail early on. The cup, the cup of Christ, the the mysterious cup of of um, of what's ultimate and eternal in life, but he can't integrate it. He doesn't ask the right questions. He's still wearing his mom's underwear, and he has to go get kicked out of the castle and wander for twenty years before he can ever make his way back there again. So it tells you something that that even a flash of insight, it's not obvious that that it can be well integrated. The part of the story I'm interested in is, is how he gets to the to the Grail itself, and and one day he runs into the the wounded king or the Fisher King, 
And the fisher king is out on the lake fishing. And this is the only way that his deep gaping wound in the thigh or the groined area, um, he ever gets any relief is fishing. I think fishing is a is an image, I'm, I'm getting this from Jung really, of the unconscious, of dipping into the, the realm of the unconscious, which is maybe the, the, the secret is he knows that it has to be healed in the unconscious. So he's just drawn to what's beneath, to the fish. And particularly the salmon was a, a sacred creature in, in that part of the world and not, not, not exclusive to that part. Wherever salmon ran up streams, they were thought, thought to be sacred. So fish, underworldly creatures. And, um, and he sees the wounded king, and the wounded king is, is the one that invites him into the castle and, and, and eventually shows him the Holy Grail, which he can't integrate the experience. There's a lance that's dripping in blood. There's the Grail. There's all kinds of things that are brought forth in this banquet. But because Parsifal doesn't ask the ultimate question, I made a podcast about this. Uh, you can check it out. But the ultimate question is, whom does the Grail serve? Whom does the Grail serve? And, less, and that's, a, that's, that's that um, transpersonal question. Like, what is the meaning of life? Well, in a simple sense here, it's that my life, even my own wounds and gifts, are for the whole, for the community, for the earth. They're to be given away. My life is to be a sacrifice. You know, I mean, it's like Paul saying, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You know, that's a very ancient archetypal idea. And... And it requires the question, whom does the grail serve? So if I taste or, or if I taste the transcendent, the ultimate, drink from the cup, um, which is both salvation and suffering, that's the cup of crisis, both salvation and comfort, uh, um, salvation and suffering. If I drink from this cup, it's to, it's to serve something larger. And, but he, Parsifal's too young. He just doesn't know. He doesn't, doesn't know to ask the question, whom does the grail serve? And, um, what's amazing about the myth in its oldest form is we don't know, even though he does come back to the castle, the myth itself remains unwritten. We don't know if Parsifal ever learns to ask this question, which is kind of, maybe that maybe it's the myth for our time. I don't know if we've learned to ask this question. We really haven't in, in many respects. And that's more of a cultural reading of, of the story. But here's my point with the wound. The king is wounded in his most vulnerable area, in the groin, in the masculine. I mean, it's, it's sort of saying this is the state of affairs in the Middle Ages. It's actually a foreshadowing of what is actually the case right now. We are deeply wounded in the masculine, deeply wounded. It's part of the reason why I'm, I'm doing this course on, on Iron John, the sacred masculine. We need a conversation around this. Um, doesn't mean that, that the feminine is, is not wounded, it is, and I'll say something about that in a moment, but deeply wounded. And unless this wound is healed, unless it's unless we learn to ask questions like, whom does the grail serve? Um, the world is going to get worse, not better. And so there's something very, very potent personally that requires our personal attention and also transpersonally that, that unless we turn toward these wounded places, um, and begin the process of fishing <laughs> and to begin to go on the larger journey that is Parsifal. And, and there's something about the masculine, uh, the masculine path of healing that is much more journey-like. I'll say something about the feminine in a moment. And I mean these archetypally. That can, we have both masculine and feminine, both. Everyone does. It's, it's part of our, our psychic makeup. So we have some work to do in the masculine and we have some 
work to do in the feminine regardless of gender here so but part of the masculine path is to go on this journey and it's arduous and it's hard and there are trials and 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 you need a lance and 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 you need armor and and that's the 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 archetypal invitation but and if we don't go on it um i think we're in a much worse place and why am i saying that now because to turn some attention to the wounds isn't just about you. It's not just about you. I mean, don't you want to stop intergenerational traumas? And don't you want to be a, a, a link in the chain that's in the chain of healing, not in the chain of passing on suffering? I, I, maybe you've heard Richard Rohr say it. He loves to say it. But if we don't, if our pain is not transformed, it's transmitted. And that's, that's what we're being asked to do when we're, when we're being invited into the wound gift conversation. It's not all about us and my wounds and my, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's about serving the larger. Okay. And finally, let me mention a few things about the handless maiden, another very amazing tale. So it begins with the story of the miller and the miller makes an appearance in all kinds of myths and legends and, and the miller is is technology it's it's masculine largely it's father oriented and it's technologically driven the miller is the the one who has learned to harness the power of of the river to grind grain which means it's the first step toward leisure and free time <laughs> It's not as back-breaking. And he, the miller is the one in, in culture that sort of lives off, you know, everyone else is the one growing the grain, and they, they need the miller to grind it. And, and so there are all these sort of temptation stories involving the miller that have to do with technology and ease and what is my life for and, and cheating people and so forth and so on. Um, technology the fact that it makes life easier means, you know, you can cheat. So um, that's the opening scene. And he makes a deal with the devil one day, which is um, sort of a little indication about what the use of technology is often like. We make a deal with the devil. And uh, he says, yeah, I'll, I would like some of your money, basically. And the devil says, well, I want whatever's in your backyard. And he says, fine, because he thinks it's this beautiful apple tree that he has, but he doesn't realize his daughter is in the backyard. So um, he's in this terrible dilemma, which many myths and stories have, where, where one has promised something, but it's too terrible to keep. And he knows if he gives his daughter over to the devil, she'll be taken by the devil and, and you know, perhaps killed or something. So or, you know, or worse, uh, become a sort of a slave to the, to, to the, the ways of evil here. And so, um, through a weird set of circumstances, he ends up, um, she's crying every time he comes to get, get her and he can't handle the, the this crying and she washes herself and, and, and the, it's the washing that he can't stand. It's the cleanliness he can't stand, which is another way of saying her innocence. And, um, he, he wants her in her innocent, pristine state. And the miller sort of sees an opportunity here and cuts off her hands and realizes that what the devil wants is this kind of perfection, perfected creature. And so he, he wounds her. He cuts off her hands and therefore not attractive to the devil anymore, but she can't live with her parents. And there's something actually awful 
I mean, it's an awful story to begin with, but it's, it is a window. Remember how old this is? I mean, we think feminism, so to speak, is a new phenomenon. No, this was, is saying that this is what the masculine will do. This is what your father will do. He will cut off your hands and you can't live with him anymore. You know, it's, 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 um, one's own personal autonomy and work in the world is cut off. You're, you can't reach for what you want. You're even your deep desires, you can't reach for what you want. You don't have hands. And, and there's, a, there's a conversation happening between the wounded finger here in the Iron John story and the handless maiden. And if you just think about the hands and the fingers, I mean, this is the place where we most readily meet the world. I know from just hurting my, my finger, suddenly I have to relate to everything I do in the, you know, from the moment I get up, turning my alarm off to making coffee, the way I engage through touch and sensation and and my ability to type, you know, I'm working, trying to work on a new book here and, and I can't right now, or I have to type, you know, like back when I was, I'm not that good of a typist anyway, but you know, the sixth grade where I'm pecking away at the keyboard. Um, but it's the place where we engage. It's, it's our possibility to become a, um, to develop a craft or be an artisan or, 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 or make love or, um, and also the, the seed of our strength and power, all that is involved in in our in our hands, and the the young boy is wounded in his finger, and here the girl has her hands cut off by by the patriarchy, you could even say, and so she's cast out. She wanders, and eventually um, she stumbles into the kingdom of you know a wise and gracious person, and, and she's very hungry. She's starving, and she begins to eat these these pears from the trees. And, um, and at first the, the owner of the, of the, of the kingdom of the, of the castle, you know, wants to find out who's stealing his pears, but then they see that it's this beautiful handless, um, maiden and he feels tremendous compassion for her and brings her in and, and marries her and gives her silver hands, has these beautiful silver hands made for her. And you'd think, oh, this is a great ending to the story. You know, we're just getting started at this point. And what's kind of amazing about, about this point in the story is that she experiences a kind of healing, but it's constructed. She learns to move in the world. And, and I think um, if you're listening and, and um, from, from the feminine here, I mean, maybe I'm about to form a question. And the question would be, is this true for you? Where you, you're cut off early on from that instinctual self, that natural self. You're cast out in some way. You come back into society and culture and you begin to, to do and move with certain roles in the world. And it's like you're doing things and you have silver hands and they're quite beautiful, but they're not real. That's kind of what the story is saying. You can operate, you're well-loved, the, you know, in this case, the husband loves the wife. Everybody in the kingdom respects the maiden with the, with the silver hands. She can live and move and, and be a person in culture and in society, but they're still not real. And you know that this is not going to last. And eventually, the grief of having these unreal hands moving in the world uh, in, in this way leads her back into a place of solitude. I'm not going to go into great depth in, into the myth because I don't want this podcast to be super long. But what's very fascinating 
about this point in, in the story is that she gets kicked back out of the castle and has to return to the woods, which tells us something that just like the Iron John story, nature, solitude, and introversion is required for healing. And in this story, nature, introversion, um, and solitude is, re- is required for the next phase. And in, in the maiden story, Handless Maiden, it happens twice. But um, so she finds herself again um, with a child in the woods and back into a place of solitude. And uh, Robert Johnson likes to say, who, inter- who inter- he's a Jungian who interprets the Handless Maiden myth in some very fascinating ways, says, often the, the masculine path of healing is about journey and quest and and he says, and often what happens in, in the feminine is that it happens in secrecy, silence, and stillness. What's needed is stillness, not action, but stillness. And he says, and then the healing comes mysteriously. And one of the things that happens in the story in one version of The Handless Maiden is that her child, which she eventually gives birth to, falls into the stream one day. And she doesn't have any hands to save it. And... um is sort of freaking out, but kind of in a moment like um, a moment of instinct or or deep mothering, instinctual mothering, she reaches for the child and her hands grow back. And this is the turning point in the story. And you could say, what causes the hands to go grow back? And we don't know. All we know is that that instinctual self suddenly came back to life again. And it had something to do with a child and and kind of the the primal reality of motherhood where the deep forces of life just take over the deep uh, the, the deep feminine that that courses through the veins of humanity um, that has its own intelligence grows back and but it requires a sort of again a separation from society in, in terms of the story but um, you know what what's my point here my point is that the healing is possible and a return to the, the instinctual self is possible, but it requires attention again to the wounds. She has to leave her silver hands behind and feel again the pain of being handless, um, of being wounded in this way from her own father and from the masculine world and, and needs the stillness of the forest and the solitude and the introversion for there to be enough space for something to grow um, in its place, for the hands to grow back. So, um, yeah, so maybe just some questions. I mean, these are like 101 questions. What are some wounds that I carry, you know? And might I need some help? Might I need to talk to somebody about these things? What's the nature of them? And what's just behind the corner of, of how they present themselves on the surface? Is a question you might want to ask. What are my core sensitivities? How am I uniquely sensitive in the world and vulnerable in the world? And when I'm touched in this very vulnerable way, it's it's wounding. But strangely, it's also a unique way I see the world and experience the world. It's like um, you know, it's like Achilles' heel. Um, it, he's vulnerable in just this one place. Or like the spirit lines in, in the Navajo rugs or the Bedouin rugs. It's so cool to me that the Navajo and the, and the Bedouin have had no cultural contact with one another, as far as we know. Um, maybe the land bridge uh, between uh, 
between continents, I don't know, but it's not obvious that there's a connection. And they, they have very similar kinds of rugs, the Bedouin and the, and the Navajo and probably other, um, other Native American tribes that I don't know of. And they call it the spirit lines, the place in the rug that's slightly off, that runs right through. You can't have anything too perfect because that, that is revealing something about our own secrets. And, and it's called the spirit line. And it's that, that imperfection, perfection, that wound gift that's present. So you'll see Bedouin rugs that, like I have one in my house, and it's just slightly off on one side, slightly lopsided. And yeah, what an image, what an image um, for just the way things are. So a question around, you know, what are some wounding events? How do I carry these um, Wounding events and dynamics. How do I experience them now in my my adult life? Um, and I'm sure you're not totally unfamiliar with these kinds of questions. Like everyone's talking about ways in which they are triggered. You know, that's the kind of uh, a first step toward deepening this conversation and the conversation around uh, beginning to ask, what are some of my sensitivities? What's the hole that's waiting for the boar's tusk? And how can I bring some attention to to the relationship between these two worlds. So I hope you heard today a hint, a clue, a guess um, about, about your own wound gift dynamic, a new way of holding these. I think it's timely uh, that I'm making this podcast just before Christmas because I don't care how cool your family is. Every time you're in the presence of family members, you're, you're, you're walking in that vulnerable territory. You're, you're, the gap in your armor is exposed. That's the way it is. That's the way it will always be. And I don't care, you know, um, how enlightened you think you are. I'm really talking to myself. I don't care how enlightened I think I am, you know, a, a family gathering, a Christmas gathering. Um, I'm walking into into a minefield. And, and so maybe you can bring some, some attention ahead of time uh, as you move through the minefield about, all right, what ways am I sensitive here? And um, how am I going to take responsibility for that? And, uh, and, and to deepen the conversation with my own wounds so I can be of greater service in the world. So, um, okay. Um, I just, you know, maybe I just want to say thanks a lot for listening. And I have to thank my patrons who support this podcast every month. I, I can't do it without you. I'm really, really, really grateful. Um, you could become a patron if, if you want through patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson. Uh, it is a direct like um, way to support the artist. And I'm just so grateful that for my many patrons, I have 70 some patrons now and I'm just like, I can't really believe it. People anywhere from a dollar on up who make this thing happen. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing that, um, that we can support things that support us. So I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. If you're not a patron, no big deal. Share this podcast with people. Um, I want the deep river, underground river of truth. That's an image from the Greek world. Um, not that I'm the bearer of that, but um, anything in this podcast that comes from the deep river of memory and of truth that is moving into the world. And if it, if it helps in some way, if there's a hint, a clue, a guess about what's ultimately the case in the world, um, what's ultimately true, uh, I'd like that to, to flow wherever it flows. So share the podcast, leave me a review on iTunes. 
it does help. Um, I'm starting to get my first request from advertisers like, hey, we've noticed your podcast is not among the smallest in the world. So would you like to advertise with us? And I'm happy to say, no, I have patrons who support this thing and I'd like to keep that the case. So, all right, enough said. Uh, Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy winter, happy descend, unless you're in the other side of the world. I have listeners in Australia and New Zealand. Hi, uh, happy summer. Um, and I'll see you down the road. Peace.